going to ask for a little audience participation at this point. Um, I want you to just speak out on uh, some things that you love. I'll begin. I love the fall. I love this time of year. I love the weather. I love everything that goes with the fall. I love the fall. How about you? Say it louder. I'm deaf. Snow. Snow. Out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What else? Family. Anticipation. Okay. You like Christmas then, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Friends. Anything else? I'm sure there's coffee. Wow. Okay. Good. All right. So I'm certain there's a few other things that that you didn't say that you love that you just can't say in public. Um, but uh, I heard things like family, friends. Maybe I didn't hear shopping, but I'm sure that's on some of your minds. Uh, hunting, fishing, etc. Reading, maybe. I didn't hear anybody say, I love the law. No one said that. Maybe some of you were thinking about it, but I doubt it. We don't say that kind of thing. I, I really love tax law. Maybe some of our accountants might say that, but... Uh, not the rest of us. There's about 170,000 federal laws in our country. Surely we could find one that we love, right? No. <laughs> we do appreciate honesty in this church. But if your Bibles are still open to the stanza that was just read, what's the first verse say in this stanza? I love your law. Kind of strange to hear, isn't it? To say that you love the law. I I can't think of any laws that I love. Uh, Traffic laws, tax laws, environmental laws, none of them ring a bell for me. Um, But as you know, if you've been here for a while, in our study of Psalm 119... Uh, there are about eight or nine synonyms for God's word, right? And one of them is law. So what the author is, is doing here is he's choosing a synonym that describes God's word and as a whole and describes it. He's declaring his love for God's word. But interestingly, which is what I want to expand on this morning... He chose a synonym that emphasizes godly codes of conduct. He loves God's law. He he could have chosen many different synonyms that he's already used many times, promise, precept, statute, but he didn't. He chose this one. So as much as he loves all of God's word, he says, my heart is attached to his law. C.S. Lewis in his book Reflections on the Psalms said that the psalmist loved the engaging moral order of a divine mind. Think about that for a second. What does he mean? Well, if Psalm 19 is anything, it's it's very ordered, right? There's 
22 stanzas, eight verses in each stanza. Each stanza represents a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is ordered, it is organized, it is detailed, and it demonstrates the value of God's word for God's people. The psalmist loved this about God, how ordered and structured his mind was. He, he desired to reproduce this kind of mind in, in his own thinking and daily practice. C.S. Lewis in the same chapter of his book said this, the author's delight is in God's statutes, verse 16. To study them is like finding treasure, verse 14. They affect him like music and are his songs, verse 54. They taste like honey. We heard that this morning from verse 103. And they are better than silver and gold, verse 72. So as one's eyes are more and more open, one sees more and more in them, and it excites wonder, verse 18. That's what's being described here in this particular stanza. He said that, that the author of Psalm 119 was a man ravished by moral beauty. Our text today... And for the next few weeks will be Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. But 97 sets the tone. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. This is the theme of the stanza. He's already mentioned his love for God's word in verses 47 and 48. But here the whole stanza is just his thoughts and the blessings he's received from his love of God's word. He's had 12 stanzas already to cry out for help and to let us know what God's word has to say about our circumstances. Now he's just saying, I love this word so much. And here's why. He gives us four reasons in this context here, in these eight verses. Four reasons why we should love God's word also with him. So I want to take you through these four, help you see them, and hopefully these reasons will convince you to use God's word as much as you should, to love God's word in the same way you might love other things that you mentioned at the beginning. First of all, the author loves God's word because it gives true wisdom. We ought to do the same. We are people always seeking for wisdom, always seeking for answers. The author here is suggesting that the word of God has those. The word of God is the source of true wisdom. Look at verse 98 through 100. He says, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99, have more understanding than all my teachers. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged. And then down to verse 104, through your precepts I get understanding. This is why he loves God's word, because it, it gives true wisdom. Not false wisdom, true wisdom. If you and I could find a blog or a podcast that was 100% accurate, never led you astray, you would probably be consistent at listening to that or reading that. One of the problems is, though, that we can never find such a thing. Modern day advice, we never know really if it's proven or accurate or not. The Word of God has made the author wiser than his enemies, it says, with more understanding than his teachers or the aged. As a Christian, I'm certain you're aware that it is expected of us to grow in our understanding of God, to grow in our understanding of the Scriptures, right? This is what Paul said to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be like children in your thinking. Don't remain where you are. He says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In other words, we should never be stagnant 
in our spiritual growth, in our, in our growth of understanding, in our growth of knowledge, in our growth of God or his word. Should always be growing, should always be filling this reservoir that's in your life, full of God's word, filling more and more and more. That's what Paul was thinking. I think that is what we'll see here in the text before us today. When you read verses 98, 99, and 100, you might think, man, this guy's arrogant. He thinks he knows more than his teachers. You know, you guys, who wants to be around someone like that? But I don't think the author's boasting here in his own wisdom. I don't think he's arrogant at all. Uh, he's not like so many that we come across today who are self-deceived about what they know or how much they know. Each of these three verses, 98, 99, and 100, he's referring to those who appear to be wise by worldly standards, the teachers, the aged, and so forth. We have a glut of those around us that claim to be wise but prove to be lacking. But what we want, what we need as we try to follow God is genuine, trustworthy insight. Think about how much information we have access to. I mean, we have so much more access to information than even 10 years ago, it's mind-boggling. The Internet seems to produce anybody who has anything to say about anything a platform to say it. And they just talk as if they are the guru. They're the, the ultimate insight or wisdom on the matter. The enemies, in verse 98, are not the guys in the past 12 stanza who had been chasing him around with spears trying to kill him. No, he's not talking about those folks. The enemies in 98 are those who present information that is misleading. They're enemies to us. He's thinking about those who manipulate the truth to gain an advantage. We, we see this kind of thing every day, don't we? This may include online sales to, and that claim things that aren't true, attention-hungry bloggers who want subscribers, people who are willing to say anything or about anything or anyone to get hits or likes. That's the enemy of our day in terms of knowledge, information, wisdom. Twisting the truth or manipulating others to get what you want is the opposite of godly wisdom. The world may applaud the person who's manipulated, manipulated their way to the top. Think, man, what a brilliant person. But the psalmist said that that isn't the result of true wisdom. If you have to manipulate others, twist the truth to get to where you are, that's not the result of godly wisdom, is what I think we could safely say is in mind. Even Jesus, you remember, in Matthew chapter 16, was talking about the rich man and how he got there and what he thought of himself. He said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What if the whole world thinks this guy is really something because of what he's attained, but he's lost his soul in the process? I think what Jesus is saying is that this person may seem to have it all together in the world's view, but God sees things differently. This world has its own wisdom, has its own strategy for succeeding which they think is superior to God's wisdom. Of course, worldly wisdom is normally contrary to God's wisdom that we find in the pages of Scripture. In fact, I'll, show, I'll read for you in a minute from 1 Corinthians 18, um, 8, verse 18. But it's common for the world to scoff at what we believe to be true and oh, do so openly. Worldly wisdom contradicts godly wisdom. We see this in almost every category of our lives. Think about it. How many times have you ever heard wisdom from people about raising your children or managing your finances or about your marriage 
we hear this, it's, it's all over the place. We're faulty world religion about these things. In Pilgrim's Progress, the, the classic book that was written by John Bunyan, there's a character named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. This guy led Christian, the main character, away because he wanted Christian to do what he wanted to do. He gave him faulty information, and Christian initially bought it, led him down the wrong path. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. It's not going to be on the overhead, so if you want to follow along, you need to turn there in your Bible with me. And I want to read for you what God thinks about wisdom. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses um, 18 through 25. <clears throat> for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where are the ones who are wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom. But we pre preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The gospel's folly to the world, friends. Continuing, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What we see here is the issue of true wisdom. What the world thinks is truly wise is in conflict with what God thinks is truly wise. Jesus is the true source and the true content of wisdom. This, the reason that the author loved this word, the reason you and I can love this word, is because it gives true wisdom versus false wisdom. Secondly, the second reason he gives is found in verse 101 and again 104. And it's this, it sets us on the right path. The Word of God sets us on the right path. Verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your Word. And verse 104, through your precepts I gain understanding, therefore I hate every false way. There's, there is a wrong way and a right way. An evil path and a godly path. Those of you who have driver's license understand what I'm about to say. It's very distressing to find yourself on the wrong road, isn't it? We've all been there, I think. Last summer, Sherry and I drove to Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, northwest New Mexico. And we went there because I'm into ancient civilization, and there's a place there of ancient civilization. Uh, it's an amazing thing to me. Sherry was like... Uh, Anyways, we went, and uh, on the way there, of course, this, this place is an hour and a half from the closest town. The last 20 miles is um, four-wheel drive country, literally, and GPS gets sketchy out there. Uh, we were looking at GPS, and you've, you've probably experienced this when it says, you have arrived, and you're just like, I have? <laughs> I have arrived? 
and there was nothing. We drove for, I mean, we went to Southwest to see this place, and <laughs> we hadn't arrived. There was nothing. And so, in our infinite wisdom, we kept driving and got a flat tire out there in the middle of nowhere. But we finally found the place, and it was spectacular to me. But it's safe to say we were in panic mode there for a while. We, were, we felt like we were on the wrong road. John, we must have gotten this wrong. Um, anyways, it strengthened our marriage. Um, <laughs> most people like me don't struggle to find the wrong path. It comes naturally to us. We're born with this uncanny ability. Uh, we have a, a knack for choosing the wrong way, making bad choices. And this skill stays with us throughout our life. How many times have you found yourself neck deep in trouble in a relationship or with your finances or in your spiritual life that all began with bad advice resulting in a bad decision? Can you relate to that? You may have followed some worldly advice about a relationship that led you down a path of pain, sorrow, regret. You may have been sold something you didn't need or couldn't afford that's developed into a financial burden. You may have decided to read a book or a blog about some spiritual topic that's resulted in spiritual confusion, indifference. You know, some, some wrong paths are easy to identify. It's obvious this is wrong. But then there are others that are very subtle and difficult to recognize. This is why we need the Word of God. Again, back to Pilgrim's Progress. Sometime the path looks good, but it ends up in spiritual danger. We need guides. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian had a couple of guides come along. One was Mr. Greatheart and one was Faithful. If you've read the book, you remember those guys. But more importantly than those two gentlemen in Christian's experience and in our experience is that he was given a book by a man named Evangelist. And the book was full of direction and maps to guide him to the celestial city. That book, we believe, is the Bible. It faithfully guides, gives true wisdom, true, true direction, sets us on the right path. The Word of God is a reliable guide, we think. My dad used to have a saying written on the desk of his study, and it was like this, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. You've heard that saying before from Bunyan? This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. This book, the Bible, will put you on the right path and keep you off the wrong path. But if you ignore this book and fill your mind with worldly wisdom, you will go down paths of sin, which will keep you from this book. So, if you examine your life this morning, and the Word of God isn't a significant part of your life, there's a, a good chance, high probability, that sin is keeping you from the book. There is some sin in your life that's keeping you from opening the book as you should, loving the book as you should, following the instructions in the book as you should. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. So the question is, what is sin? Hopefully we don't have to spend a lot of time explaining that in this church. We talk about it often. But in case you're not familiar, let me read for you the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14 and answer. Question 14 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is sin? The answer is this. Sin is any want of conformity or lack of conformity 
unto or transgression of God's law. If you fail to conform to this, it is sin. In any part of this, it is sin. God's words informs us as to what pleases him and what offends him. And our job as Christians is to conform to this. God's word points us to the right path and warns us of the wrong paths. Even well-meaning self-help books, as helpful as they can be, can, not necessarily will, but can cause you to think that your hope and your strength and your direction and your identity is found in man-made wisdom or maybe even yourself. This is leading down a wrong path, a reliance on worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. So I would say concerning self-help books or any book for that that matter, um, go ahead and read good books on organizing your home or leadership or business or hunting or fishing, whatever you want to read about. But don't buy the lie that you are an independent individual who can get your joy, your self-worth, your identity from man-made wisdom. That's the wrong path. It's a lie. You cannot. Even though we seem to spend a lot of time trying to find that in places other than Scripture. The world would invite you to walk down a path that's taking you away from God's intent. Um, it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? The world's not going to produce a path that leads you towards God. <laughs> so it shouldn't surprise us. In order to live in a God-honoring way, we need to walk in a path of his design. I think these are real logical conclusions here that we're making. And, of course, his design is laid out in his word and are free from things that might dishonor him, like uh, hurting others to get ahead. The world would say, ah, that's just shrewd business. Like making financial decisions that would restrict your ability to give generously. The world would call this living like you deserve. Or like thinking that you were independent of God. And the world would call this you're being your own man. You see, this is the worldly path that doesn't honor God. God's path is clearly something different. So, do you think that you can walk in a manner pleasing to God without his word? Is it possible? Do you hate the path that leads you away from fellowship with God? Verse 104 says, I hate that false way. Does that describe our hearts? Do we hate that path that takes us in the opposite direction? Another question might be worth asking is, can you recognize a wrong path when you're on it? Do you even know you're on a wrong path if you find yourself there? Well, in case you're not certain whether or not you're on the right path, let me give you some signs that you'll see along that path if you're on the wrong path. All right? Here are signs you'll see along the wrong path. Lack of interest in Christian fellowship. Do you see that sign? Lack of interest in Christian fellowship? Lack of interest in God's Word. Take it or leave it. You can't even remember the last time you opened it. That's a sign that you're on the wrong path. Lack of serving in the church. Lack of giving to God's ministry. Abundance of misused time. Misused money. These are all signs you'll see along the path that leads away from God. 
How about signs on the right path? That you know you're going the right direction. Well, you look forward to Christian fellowship. You look forward to opportunities of getting together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You're interested in our agape meals, in our first Wednesdays, in our small group activity. You don't resist and recoil at the idea of getting together with other believers. I'd rather be alone doing this, doing that, doing the other. We have signs that demonstrate we're on the right path or on the wrong path. Signs that we're on the right path, we look forward to Christian fellowship. We look forward to time in God's Word. We are other or others oriented in the use of our money and our time. These are signs that you're on the right path. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul laid out uh, his doctrine of the church in, in Ephesians 1 through 3, and then he makes it to 4. He, he wants to make sure those people, the Christians in Ephesus are thinking correctly. And he says this, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's walk on the right path. And here's what it looks like. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These are signs that you'll see along the right path. Paul was interested in the Ephesus church walking the right path. The Holy Spirit is interested in you walking the right path. One of the things that we come to in Scripture is a choice between ourselves or Christ. God or our own agenda. God's agenda or our own agenda. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the wrong way. Narrow is the right way. Where we, what we find in Scripture is that there is that right path and it is only through Christ Jesus that we can get to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. There is no other path to God besides me, Jesus said. Have you embraced him? Have you embraced his word? The third thing we see in Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104, as a reason for loving God's word is this, it offers God as teacher. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. I remember in college being interested in getting the professors who had a reputation for being good teachers. Uh, one of the first things you learn when you get to college is to befriend upperclassmen who will tell you which teachers to avoid, which professors to stay away from. You go to that guy's class, you will not learn math, and you'll get an F. If you go to this guy's class, you might get a B, but you'll pass the class and you'll learn a little bit about math. Don't go there, go here. We want to make sure we get the right teachers. Well... In verse 102, the emphasis is so clear on God's personal instruction, you can't miss it. He repeats himself, actually, in the original language. He uses two pronouns. He says, literally, you yourself are my teacher. It doesn't just say, you have taught me. It says, you yourself have taught me. And you know, the scriptures that the author of Psalm 119 had right? He had the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he had the books of Moses. Maybe Job, I don't know. But for certain he had the books of Moses. He didn't say, 
I do not turn aside from your rules, for Moses has taught me. What did he say? You yourself have taught me, God. The author here believed that the scriptures were God's word, that God was his teacher, not Moses. Moses was a vessel. Paul is a vessel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, vessels. God is the one teaching. Scholars believe that the Apostle Paul spent three years being personally taught by Jesus after his Damascus Road conversion because of what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, he said that he wasn't taught by any man, but after his conversion, he went into Arabia for three years where God revealed Jesus Christ to him. So scholars believe for three years, the Apostle Paul was in God's personal seminary. Three years. How would you like that instruction? Three years of personal interaction with God over the scriptures, over the person of Jesus Christ. How many would like that? Right? Any of you know where I'm going with this? You have it. It's in your word, right there on your lap. In fact, if you were to gain some audience with God, person to person, and get to spend up to three years with him, guess what he would do? He would open Genesis and say, turn with me to Genesis. Now let's read all the way through the Old Testament. Let's end up at Revelation. That would be the instruction. In fact, if you had an audience with God, you wouldn't discover anything else about God that isn't revealed in the Scriptures. God is our teacher. Are you paying attention? Don't sleep in class if God's teaching. This is amazing. We would love that time with Jesus on the proverbial Emmaus Road, but we have the words of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the words of God from Genesis to Revelation. We can actually love this book because here we find God to be our teacher. Finally, in verse 103, we discover the fourth reason that this author loved God's word and that we ought to as well. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It is sweet to our spiritual taste. That's the word of God. Most of us like sweet things. Some of us really like sweet things. Evidently, King David thought that the scriptures were sweet as well. He said in Psalm 19, verses 9 and 10, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is synonym for the word of God. It's clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord, and the word of God is true, righteous altogether. Now listen, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That sounds a little odd to us, doesn't it? If you think about the commands of Scripture, we may not be convinced that God's laws are sweet, right? It's hard to even understand the reference. What do you mean God's laws are sweet? Well, it might help to look a little more closely at verse 103 where he says, how sweet are your words to my taste. It's a summary of all that God has said to us in the Scriptures. 
And of course, like us, the psalmist had favorite parts that, that are just sweet to the taste, sweet to the soul, particular verses that encourage us, give us hope, strengthen us in times of difficulty. We might even say they're sweet to us. Do you have verses like that? I think you probably do. I think we all would say this of Psalm 23, it is sweet to the taste. Listen, see if you would agree. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Is it sweet yet? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Friends, what a shepherd we have. What, what sweet calls come from this word to our souls? Amazing. What do you do with physically sweet things in your mouth? Are you like most dogs I know that it just flies past the tongue and they never taste it? <laughs> Down. No. What do you and I do? We have a piece of chocolate rolls around in our mouth till it's gone. He said, we make strained faces and noises when something's sweet in our mouth. Do we do the same with God's word? Do we roll the sweet word of God over and over into our soul and mind, taking every last drop of sweetness that our soul can muster? Do the word of God, do those words move our emotions Godward? Do we find ourselves not being able to not worship? We, we, we just break out in praise and thanksgiving like Paul did in Romans 8 because of the sweetness of God's word. Romans 8, 28 is sweet to a lot of us who've gone through difficulty, isn't it? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How many times have you hung on to that one? Anybody know John three sixteen? Yeah. It promises those of us who believe we can have eternal life. <laughs> wow. That's pretty sweet to the soul. How about this one? Romans 8, 38 through 39. For those of us who question God's love and think that we might have lost it. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. For these reasons we love the word. It gives true wisdom. It sets us on the right path. It offers God as our teacher. And it is sweet to the soul. Friends, is this your take on God's word? If you took in God's word as much as you liked your spouse or hot chocolate... How much hot chocolate would you be drinking? How much time would you be spending with your spouse? Friends, there's no comparison between God's word and the other things we mentioned we love. I know that 
that if I like doing something and I actually would say I love this thing, I would do it more than one hour a week. How many times have you opened the Bible in the last week? How many times have you thought of our sweet Savior who is revealed on the pages of the Bible this past week? I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you see that the things we love, we spend time with. I want to motivate you, Christian friend, to allow your conduct, your actions, your practices to reflect what I think your mind would tell me right now about your love for God's word. If it is true, then get after it. If you're convinced of this, if you, in fact, love God's word for the reasons that the author gave us here, the four simple reasons, then we too should have it affect our lives as it's affected his. It should saturate our souls as it's saturated his. Friends, this is one of my primary concerns for the people at this church, is that you are soaked in God's word that you're dripping wet with it because all the things that we've talked about this morning will result from that. You will know Christ. You will know forgiveness of sin. You will know eternal life. You will know the right path if and only if the word of God saturates your soul. May that be the case starting today. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word we find true wisdom. That we are given directions for the paths that we should be walking. That we have you as our teacher. And that it is sweet, not bitter to the taste, but sweet. Oh, Father, do what you must. Holy Spirit, do what you must to draw us to that place that our, our souls are consumed with pursuing you and your word. Father, help us to be a church filled with people of the book that we might be affected by it daily, that a day wouldn't pass where your word does not influence our thinking, our actions. Bless us this week, Father, as we come to you in your word. Reveal yourself to us in your faithfulness. Remind us of your love. Teach us your ways. Show us your path this week as we open your word. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.